Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Thank you so much. If you would give me a timer at, at 20, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, I'm Lauren. I'm a compulsive eater and a grateful member of Overeaters Anonymous. And I thank the planners of this who have gone to so much work and all of you who have come. And I thank all of you whose footsteps I've been able to walk in for these last 12 years of transformative stories that I've heard in meetings and at yearly marathons. Um, welcomer, uh, newcomers have been welcomed, but if you are a newcomer, our literature and common practice says that it's, it suggests it's best to take the steps in order from one to 12. Um, I imagine that like a spiritual gym that has 12 stations in it. And I'm old enough now to know what restorative exercise is. Restorative exercise for me is, uh, you know, getting my joints aligned so that they support my body to the best it can at this time in my life. And I understand that our literature says these steps restore us to sanity and I could never figure out what that meant because I had never felt sane in my life. So what was it restoring me to? And so restorative exercises helped me to understand that it's helped putting me back in an order and the way that the creator made me to go the best way for, for me to be. And I understand restorative exercise most like when I do, say, bicep work, I'll have to breathe for four beats as I release and, you know, bring in my bicep. And that is kind of against my nature. It's pretty horrific. I don't like slow. I would rather be fast. I would be like to finish the project. I'd, I'm a perfectionist and I'd much rather take a pill. I wouldn't be in Overeaters Anonymous if you could take a pill and simply have all of this, you know, go away. Um, so my philosophy is to try harder. If I have a basic belief that I'm not good enough or what I'm doing is not up to par, do it over again. Keep doing it the same way, dig in, try harder. Even as a 10-year-old, I can remember coming home on the bus and with an imaginary knife, cutting off my fat stomach and my thighs. If the emotion is too much for me, if the person is too much for me, if the job is too much for me, cut it off. I, I learned then at 16, that was an early strategy, and I learned at 16, well, I couldn't do well with all of the 25 or 30 diets that I'd already tried. I lost weight on every one of them, but of course, once I quit, I started over eating in the same strategy I'd had before and I would gain it all back and more. So the only thing I could think of was to stop eating altogether. And
and uh, I learned how to do that for weeks at a time when I was still young. And uh, I wouldn't talk to people about what I was doing because then I would have to say why I was doing it. So I learned strategies of lies, avoidance, and subterfuge about starving and about binging and about the mental chaos that I was in. I canceled work. I canceled classes and performances if I'd eaten even too large a portion. I realized then that I couldn't stop from starting a binge and I couldn't stop once I'd started. So I was screwed one way or the other way. And the voices in my head came to control this strategy, the strategy of eating, you know, I started so early, I think probably prepubescent, you know, 11 or 12. And it was a very good strategy at the time because I needed that comforter, that counselor, consoler. That's all I had. And it was a very good strategy at the time. But uh, 20 years later, when I was, when that had become a, habit of mind, the mental chaos had become a habit of mind and an addiction to sugar of the body, um, then I was really in a certain kind of chaos. And in my head, the strategies were shoulda, coulda, woulda, which we've heard a lot. I criticized myself for every big feeling that I had. And I did that violence to my body that I was talking about. So I was still using the strategies of a 13-year-old. I finally um, found my way to OA because I was trying to get somebody else into a program, which is typical of me, trying to make somebody else's life work. And Fortunately, higher power to have it that I found my way into the Overeaters Anonymous rooms. And I took my first trip through the steps. And we like to talk about OA as layers of an onion. So this was my surface layer that I was trying to peel back. And I had a sponsor and I was really gung-ho to work the steps. Um, made a list of those we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. As far as I was concerned, I must have been pretty self-involved and thought that I was very, very powerful because everybody who looked at me cross-eyed or wasn't happy with my work or the way I had acted at a party or the way I talked, I felt I had to apologize. So my first time through step eight was to basically write down everybody's name and apologize to everybody. And my sponsor knew about this, but I just, you know, I just, I just apologized. That's how I got through it. And 25 years later, when I came back into the program out here in the East Bay, I had lived a couple more lifetimes, it felt like, of resentments, 
of fears, of anxiety, of loss of people and jobs and places and things. And she was already 28 years in the program. And like some people we've heard today, when she took me through the steps, when she had gone through them the first time, OA didn't have its own literature. So they used the AA literature and the big book way of going through the steps. So when I had done my fourth step, I had written pages on the resentments that I still had about my parents and other members of my family and bosses, you know, the people, places, and things. And she, she stayed with me so that she kept asking me to look in that closet of resentments and fears. And was there one shoebox back in the cobwebs that I had left undone? So I really, really went through it all. And so there were many people on there. Excuse me, that's my Audubon clock telling me what time it is. There were many people on there that were at the effect of my resentments and my fears and that I was still blaming, envying, gossiping about, hating, and so on. Um, of course, there was that fifth paragraph in our Overeaters Anonymous eighth step that says, some of us find that we should be on the top of our resentment list. But I just glossed over that because I thought those that was for softies. Anybody who puts themselves on their eighth step list, you know, is just, you know, examining their belly button. And this is all about this. And that just shows kind of like that part of my personality I'm not so proud of. It's pretty like once I have an idea of what my opinion is, I'm pretty self-righteous about it. And it was about this. So I had plenty of people and she encouraged me to start with the with the real easy ones because of course I was willing but I didn't want to and I particularly didn't want to make direct amends to such people except when to do so would injure them or others because she also suggested I do this step as she had and as she had learned to and she said the literature tells us that we are we don't have to be ashamed of our relationship with our higher power, which the 12 step programs call God. And that I could say to people when I saw them in person, and that's how I did it, or called them on the phone if they were far away, that I was in a program that was fashioned after Alcoholics Anonymous called Overeaters Anonymous because I was a compulsive eater and I needed to clean up my side of the street and in doing so I realized that I owed them an amends. Now the idea, the very idea of saying this to anyone, stranger but family members employers it was just it just made me sweat it was absolutely anathema cannot be done so she just encouraged me to be willing to be willing and to keep praying about it and I decided I would try to just imitate her 
use her voice when I got on the phone. She also encouraged me to, sometimes I could just separate myself enough from myself to observe myself as if I were an animal in a zoo who was doing this kind of thing. And I think she was trying to gently introduce a little bit of pragmatism, you know, to, to a situation where I was panicked. Um, and I've heard people talking about that recently in program, and that's, that's another thing to talk about. But I actually started with my lower level people, like stealing a book from the resource library at Lincoln Center and practicing saying that. And then I would call someone that I had taken some um, office supplies from, a job that I had left, and, and I would speak to the office manager and I would say that. And then I worked my way up to a relative who I had borrowed $300 from and hadn't paid it back. And I, I just, I just am telling you these things because they, they were bigger and bigger and they were closer and closer to that part of me that I never wanted to share, especially with these people. I had hidden it all my life from family, friends, strangers, therapists. I would never tell that part, that part about binging. I would tell anything else and make it anybody else's fault rather than saying this part. So I want to share that to say that when it was, when I had made a few of these, I got off the phone and I was sort of like vibrating in space in some sort of um, shock or exaltation of some sort. And I felt these pieces of earth or cement lichen, you know, cracking on me and falling off. And I felt all of a sudden freely, um, nakedly free. That's what I felt. Just as if some weight had fallen off me. I had never known that I was carrying weight. I was carrying a burden of all of these resentments. It was said in the literature, but I couldn't know it until I knew it. And the second sentence in our OA 12 and 12 after it states the ninth step is, and some of us were surprised at the result. And, and I'm sharing with you my surprise and also that it was a way of standing up for myself to say who I was that I had never done and it brought me intimacy into me see. It brought me a portal of potential connectedness to other people and a sense of trust and faith in myself and in my higher power. Now, that was the second time and the second layer of the onion, I guess I could say. But in the last number of years, in the last four years, eight, 
of which I've been married. I began to look at that fifth paragraph in the OA 12 and 12 that said perhaps we should put ourselves at the top of the list and tried to dig deep into what that meant. And the program and working the steps and abstinence has allowed me to seek further and actually make use of external resources that I could never make use of before that have helped me begin to understand what it actually meant to be kind to myself, even the parts of me that are self-critical, that are despairing, that have been suicidal, that have been in grief, that are sad, that are needy, especially the needy ones. I just wanted to get rid of all of those emotions and have some sort of serenity, which I assumed was going to be part of being a good recovered person. And what I've learned is it recovery just means we get to be more human. We get to actually feel human feelings. I get to feel my human feelings and um, learn to ask myself, what do you need? Ask myself how I can even be of service to myself. And these I know, steps eight and nine are about relationships, or active steps about relationships with myself and with a partner and with others. And I learned in my marriage finally to listen this way. Listen and wait until I'd heard what the problem was and to take time if I needed to talk to my sponsor or members. And then if there's a problem in a relationship I've learned, we both have a problem. And I needed to amend for my part of the problem. Even if I didn't mean to roll my eyes, even if I didn't mean to sound harsh, or even if it was a knee-jerk reaction and I thought it was appropriate, the truth is I had hurt someone and I can, could apologize and amend that behavior. And the, the founders in their wisdom gave us the ninth step promise after the ninth step, which so many of you know because we read it regularly at our meetings but for those of you who are new, this is where it comes. And I'll read just a portion of it to you. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We'll not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We'll comprehend the word serenity and no peace. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can be benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We'll lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And 
we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So, Father Terry, who is a circuit speaker who I often quote, says, well, here's the hard and honest truth. We don't change. You are the human being that you are. It's just that we become more familiar with God and with who we are, and then we can perhaps change our behavior. We can get a clue as to what it is that we can put some space between ourselves and it, and maybe not do it this time. So I, thank you. So I go back to the steps as a an, my imaginary twelve station restorative gym, spiritual gym. Steps eight and nine are are pretty advanced. So it really helps if I work one through seven first and it is okay to do things only good enough. Since not good enough is one of my basic deep negative beliefs about myself. I always thought I had to be perfect about a step. And as I, I think I've shown you, I was certainly not perfect. I just bumbled my way through step eight a number of different times until I began to get to the deeper levels. I did it with a sponsor. I did it with partners in the program. The instructions in the book are clear. They say that they're simple, but they're not easy because they're slow. Like that, you know, slow bicep, you know, they're, they're every day, they're homeopathic. It's not a one-time pill, it's an, for me, it's an everyday pill. And um, also I wanted to share that there's something hidden in the step. There's a secret sauce that's different for each individual. So nobody can tell another person what it's like. You only find out what the gifts are in each step and what they do cumulatively when you do them yourself. And I'll close with saying what I've learned. I've learned that it's normal for um, me as a human to have big emotions and that the bigger my life, the more pushback I may get. I'll feel inadequate, but I can connect with others. It's okay to make mistakes. I can forgive myself. I've got the steps to show me how to do it and that the steps are easily best done slowly and good enough works. And I'm often amazed at how my mood and my spirits and enmeshment with others lift when I've done it, that I, I, I am amazed that I can experience forgiveness for myself and trust myself and others. And even a feeling of playfulness and lightness and even fun, even during shutdown happens. And I have an opportunity to be a better friend, partner, and OA member. And with that, I'll pass and thank you for letting me share.